back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. And we're back after a short hiatus, and this is our first interview since the hiatus. And I'm excited to introduce today's guest to you, Diana Rose Harper. We recorded this episode a couple weeks ago. On this podcast, we've been having conversations about astrology, as well as some other topics that accompany being on a personal development path or living a spiritual life. And I'm an evolutionary astrologer. I've been practicing in that tradition for eight years now. And just more recently, I've started studying Hellenistic astrology out of curiosity and out of having so many colleagues and friends that study and speak Hellenistic. And so I wanted to understand that more. On this episode, Diana and I speak of certain concepts that um, are more Hellenistic in nature, like essential dignity, um, which is the naming of certain or the categorization of certain planetary placements as exalted, detriment, fall. And we spoke about the language that's used in this and kind of how to consider this concept in a way that doesn't have to make people feel bad or like they're doomed if they have a planet in detriment. Um, So we explored a little bit more about what that means. And generally this led us to discuss how astrology can be something that we utilize for growth and for working with our challenges, but not as a language that just confirms that we're doomed or that we're bad. And so really thinking about how we come into an astrology practice philosophically, um, what we're looking to astrology to provide us with, and how we can be mindful when using language such as detriment or fall, um, looking more into what that means and expanding that concept a little bit because I know that in modern astrology communities, like it can be seen as bad to use that language. And then, you know, not all modern astrologers, right? But there's a kind of division um, in the astrology world philosophically between different schools of astrology, which I've become more and more aware of recently. And I think it's important to have conversations across disciplines um, and empathize or understand each other more deeply. I come from a history with astrology of like when I was studying evolutionary astrology and building my practice, a really firm belief that it was purely a human judgment that some planetary placements were better than others or some were exalted and others were in detriment. And that each planetary placement had this divine perfection in its own right, and we only had to discover what it needed. And then the more that I've studied Hellenistic and spoken with practitioners who work with the system of detriment and fall and exaltation, a call to essential dignity, 
I've started to empathize more with the concept that certain placements can be perhaps more challenging or uh, Diana worded it really well in this episode, like mitigated and unmitigated expression of a planet's essential nature, depending on what sign it's in. If we're using a language like essential dignity in a thoughtful way or in a way that's helpful, there's actually a lot that you can gain out of it. I've started to really reflect more on my own placements and their condition in a traditional sense to gain just another perspective on myself and my challenges. When I first started practicing astrology and I felt repulsed by the concept of essential dignity, I didn't know it by that name yet, but was just thinking that, you know, no planetary placement is bad. That's just human judgment. They're all objectively perfect and we just need to figure out how to work with them. I was really, really also enchanted by this idea of creating our own reality. And I still very much am. I still work with that kind of, um, you know, manifestation and attraction and magnetism work. At that time in my life, thinking that a planetary condition meant that something would just be harder for me was not something that I felt like entertaining. And now it doesn't bother me as much. Now I'm more curious about it. And in order to speak more fluently of the concept, one that I'm only beginning to really entertain and learn now that I'm studying traditional or Hellenistic techniques, I'm still in that discovery phase. But I found in this conversation, you know, we're teasing out more of the value in examining a planet's condition what that means and what that doesn't mean. And Diana points out how some of the language, how some things are lost in translation, um, that we hear negative connotation when we hear the words detriment or fall in a way that isn't the original, part of the original sentiment of the word. So I'll let you listen to our conversation to hear the rest of that, but let me introduce you to Diana. Diana Rose is an astrologer, tarot reader, Reiki master, writer, and workshop facilitator, currently based in Los Angeles, California, and serving clients worldwide through the magic of the internet. She is deeply invested in the power of asking better, deeper questions toward a more ferociously loving and compassionately honest state of being. By blending an earnest belief in humankind's ability to do better, a disinterest in dysfunctional hierarchies, and delight in the process of healing, she aims to guide others towards an expansive and re-enchanted relationship with existence. Her dedication to eroding systems of oppression means that she offers sliding scale to those who carry certain marginalized identities, non-white passing POC, trans, GNC, immigrant, and indigenous folks who are included in that, as well as care workers, sex workers, and activists working toward liberation and environmental justice. In May of 2020, she will be a first-time invited speaker at the Northwest Astrological Conference, presenting her talk, Fierce Compassion, Natal Astrology as Radical Self-Care. Throughout Diana's writings and teachings, I find so much insight from her on what an astrology practice is in the context of self-care and liberating ourselves from social conditioning and unraveling our own personal conditioning as well. 
And the deeper we get into astrology and living astrologically and working with our charts, I found that it can get harder to tell people what astrology is. Kind of like the story of the two fishes from David Foster Wallace, which goes, there are these two young fishes swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning, how's the water? And the two young fishes swim on for a bit and eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? So, right, when we're so deeply immersed in something, how do we talk about what it is? But we have to talk about methodology and how we approach this water that we're swimming in. Diana's teachings are full of reflection on what astrology is about and how it can influence our lives for the better and how it is a tool and how we can both unskillfully or skillfully wield that tool. How do we sort out from our practice any baggage we've carried in? Um, archetypes we don't like, philosophical conceptions about what astrology is that don't serve us. As we discussed in this episode, do we look to our astrology practice or research for evidence and confirmation that we suck? Is there something in our chart that just confirms our fears? Or can astrology open doorways for us in navigating the challenges that we do have? We know we have them, um, but effectively see them in a different way and learn what resources we have in our charts and in ourselves for change and for navigating these um, challenges in a new way. Diana's work is presenced with a realness about confronting the hardship of human experience, humor, and encouragement toward feeling a sense of awe. I'm really grateful having gotten to meet Diana and get to know her more since last year's NORWAC. Northwest Astrological Conference. She has so much wisdom to share. She's a gem, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. And if you'd like to continue learning from her, I'd suggest following her across her social media channels, linked in the show notes, to stay informed of her thoughts and offerings. Before recording this, I was trying to think um, how I would describe what she's like as an educator. And I got this image of her pointing to something around the size of a piece of paper and it opening up with a scroll and a window. I'm thinking of how she's taken concepts like the sun moving through your 12 houses. So you can track that. Um, where is the sun through your houses at any given moment in time? And illuminated it as a practice for those who are learning astrology and perhaps don't know how to track that yet. But I can say that being given that tool means so much. So much of the deepening and exploration within astrology comes from learning certain techniques and having direct experiences with them. Maybe it's a Mercury and Sagittarius thing. We talked about this placement of hers in the episode but I see her point to places that can be realms of travel and exploration, and we're invited into it through her perception and the knowledge she's collected. Here's our conversation. Hey, Diana, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. It's really exciting to be here and to be having this conversation with you, Sabrina. So before we dive in, I would love to hear about what brought you onto the path of being an astrologer. Um, and then you also read tarot. So I'd just love to hear more about your practice. Yeah. So um, when it comes to astrology, tarot was actually the thing that brought me towards it, I would say. Um, when I was 
a child when I was like five or so. Um, that's the first time I experienced um, like a deck of cards that people were using for, you know, self-exploration and divination and things like that. It was one of those um, like animal spirit decks, like Native American animal spirit decks um, that one of my one of my mom's friends had at her house. And I thought it was super interesting, but I was five. Um, and then a few years later, I used the allowance that I earned from uh, pulling dandelions in my grandmother's yard um, to buy a tarot deck at Barnes & Noble, actually. It was like one of those little tarot kits. Um, it's been forever since I've been in at Barnes & Noble, so I don't know if they sell them anymore. But um, at the time, I was just, I was really fascinated by images um, and by stories. Like I started reading when I was really little and I really loved like mythology and fairy tales and things like that. And so um, I would use those cards to basically create stories. Like I didn't try to predict the future really. And, um, you know, I was like kind of confused by the guidebook because I was eight, not like an adult looking for insight. Um, but yeah, I would create just like stories and like kind of write out the stories that I saw in the cards as I laid them out. Um, and around that same time, around when I was like eight or so, um, that's when I started like reading the newspaper horoscopes because they were on the same pages of the newspaper that the comics were, like the daily comics. I would read the comics every morning with breakfast before going to school. Um, and as I did that, I would, you know, look at the horoscopes too. And I thought that there was something to them, but I knew that they also weren't entirely useful, really. Um, but just the idea that the stars could be telling us information about our lives, I thought was really interesting. Um, and then fast forward like a decade, um, and in college, I got roped even further into um, studying things that would end up being relevant to my practice now. Um, so things like philosophy and literature and aesthetics and ecology and things like that. Um, and in late high school and early college, um, a friend of mine and I spent a lot of time on Llewellyn's free tarot portal, um, which was really cool. And I like to bring it up because it's, um, it's a free resource that is very um, diverse in how it presents the tarot meanings because there's something like eight decks that you can pick from and every one of the decks has different descriptions for every single card. And so it kind of points out how even though like the page of cups is the page of cups is the page of cups, there's an infinite array of ways to get in at what the page of cups can mean. Um, and that was really appealing to me um, and spurred like ongoing study. And then after college, that's when I really got deeper in the weeds with um, both tarot and at that point, astrology. Um, my ex-partners, um, like one of the one of the people that my ex-partner knew um, and I like developed a friendship that was really rooted in like things like tarot and astrology. And she actually gave me my first astrology book. Um, and I just started paying more attention to those things and observing what it meant for me in my life and how it helped me to understand the people around me. Um, you know, I'm somebody that has uh, 
I mean, you can see this in my chart, but you can also see it in my bi- biography where like being a human is something that I find um, something that's very fascinating and also very challenging at the same time. Um, and astrology and tarot were things that were kind of helping to illuminate what it means to be human in some way. Um, and then a few years after that, I went to my first astrology conference that was UAC uh, 2018. Um, and that really just kind of exploded my awareness and appreciation of the vast, like the vastness, like the vast wisdom that's available in astrology. And at the same time, helped me to understand kind of how much I knew and how much more there was to know. Um, and really set me, set me well on the way to where I am now, I would say. Um, so yeah, it's a lot about um, story making. And I've even had reflected to me by people who are into astrology, but haven't necessarily studied tarot, that even how I talk about astrology still feels very rooted in tarot, and that I really like to think in terms of stories and images and how we can use use these things to comprehend um, events that have happened to us, events that might come to pass, um, and kind of what it means to exist (laughs) and try to exist well within Mm. the world that we're in. That is a really good segue into what we wanted to talk about today with narrative, but I also just wanted to comment on the dandelions being kind of this mediator between you and tarot. Mm -hmm. And then you use the phrase like in the weeds with astrology. (laughs) And I just find, you know, plants and planets, like there's this correlation between them, but I wonder if um, if you've thought about dandelion like in that way as being like a mediator on this path. Yeah, actually, and that really um, that was really highlighted for me. I think it was when I was talking with um, Chris Rapucci uh, for their podcast Liminal Light last year. Um, like they really kind of pointed out the dandelion theme for me. And what's interesting is that um, dandelions. I don't know. They just, they have so many different kinds of significations, but um, one of the interesting things that's cool about them medically is the way that they help support kind of detoxification processes and they support our livers, um, which is kind of like physical shadow work, (laughs) like breaking things down that might harm us into components that can actually be either used by the body or excreted from the body. Um, and, you know, shadow work was a huge part of like, especially when I was getting into tarot as like a late teen, early 20 something, like getting into these bits that just were so difficult to wrap my head and heart around. Like that was a huge amount of what I was using tarot for. Um, and that like kind of persistent, uh, joyous um, detox process, you could say, has been a definite theme too. Mm, yeah. Consistent, joyous detox. <laughs> that is kind of like what studying astrology can turn out to be because we're in a sense analyzing um, like what's going for us, what's difficult for us, what we're in process about, and the insights that we gain from astrology can really help catalyze those processes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we spoke a little bit um, before this episode about kind of philosophically approaching astrology in terms of the language that we're using to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I want to um, ask you just to open that conversation of 
um, why you feel that's important or what's happening too in terms of how is astrology connected to storytelling um, mm-hmm. as opposed to it being kind of like a conveyance of fact? Yeah, well, I think a lot about language. Um, like I studied, I studied French in college um, and when people were like, why are you, why are you majoring, majoring in French? There's like five people in the major and like, it's not the most quote unquote useful degree that exists, but there's something about being able to understand concepts from a different languages perspective that I think is really expansive in like that Jupiterian sense. So, you know, expanding our ability to, um, think in ways that go beyond what we've been kind of trained to think or like how we have grown up thinking. Um, And when it comes to the language we use in astrology, you know, I think it can be easy to get caught in this idea that, you know, English or any language is just an objective language, but there's no such thing as an objective objective language. Every language carries connotations in how words are used and how sentences are constructed. And, um, even over time, different words will take on different connotations and being aware of what those underlying connotations are is really important for understanding how we might be boxing ourselves into definitions that don't actually support us in deepening our understanding and deepening our processes of becoming, right? Since, you know, we're always becoming in some way. Um, you know, what does it mean to get stuck in certain ways of becoming instead of continuing to sort of unfold? Um, And language, I think, is a factor in that and questioning the language that we're using and exploring the roots of the languages that we're using, the words that we're using. Um, You know, so one example that's been up in the astrological community lately is really rooted in this idea, idea of essential dignity, which Um, is a concept that is very foundational to astrology, but it's used differently or not fully named in some of the more contemporary forms of astrology because those forms of astrology were developing at a time when a lot of the um, really ancient texts hadn't yet been translated into English, right? Um, And this is something that, you know, you and I talked about, Sabrina. So, um, yeah, like the... So in all of the astrologies, I think, um, at least all of them that I'm aware of, there's this idea of planetary rulership, like the like certain signs are ruled by other certain planets, right? Every planet um, has at least one sign of rulership. Um, and essential dignities goes even further um, by saying, you know, certain planets are at home in certain signs, certain planets are in the opposite of their home at certain t- in certain signs. So, you know, that's often called in detriment or in fall, um, which in English, those words come with a lot of failure connotations. I think in English and also in the time that we're in, right? Um, it's not the most perfect translation of what those, what those original words were attempting to describe. And it's also, you know, language that was created within a particular sociocultural context where to be exiled from the land that you live in and exiled from the land where your family is and all of these sorts of things carries a lot of different risks and implications in, you know, 
980 <laughs> than it carries in 2020 AD, right? Um, so if you haven't dug, in, dug into the idea of what does a planet in detriment, like what does detriment mean? Um, what does exaltation mean? Um, and what do those things mean in a contemporary context? What does that mean in a contemporary life? Um, then you can get yourself inside of a box that is proving, quote unquote, to yourself why you or your life sucks instead of having language that allows for a different comprehension of your experiences that ideally will open doors to understanding rather than just, you know, again, confining you in a very limiting box. So, yeah. yeah. Beautifully put. Um it's so interesting too that there's kind of this phenomenon that I experience personally and I see it in a lot of people that some of the first initial investigating and discoveries of astrology at a personal level, there's often a a part a big part of that of like how am I fucked up and how does my natal chart say that I am? Mm-hmm. Um, like how am I doomed? Like that's just kind of, and that's can be a fear that people come into astrology with is like, is there something wrong with me? Like, is there something that the stars have to say about why love has always been so hard for me or about why I have a, a troubled relationship with money and feeling as though if the skies confirm that, then it's like a, some kind of condemnation or like a statement of certitude like this is just the way it is versus how these languages could be used to acknowledge that maybe there is something tricky in this area of your life but here's what you can do about it Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I feel like that's one of the benefits actually of using essential dignity the concepts of essential dignity even if you decide to replace the words that are used within essential dignity, it still gives you an idea of, okay, so for example, um, the most recent Mercury retrograde, which was primarily in Pisces and partially in Aquarius. Within essential dignity, Mercury is in really not great shape in Pisces, um, in that the tools that Mercury prefers to use and the methods that Mercury prefers to use aren't really available to Mercury whenever it's in the sign of Pisces. This doesn't mean there are no tools and no methods. It just means that Mercury's favorite tools and methods aren't aren't accessible, basically. And so Mercury has to use, um, you know, in traditional astrology, Jupiter is the ruler of Pisces. And in modern astrology, or certain kinds of modern astrology, we would say Neptune is the ruler of Pisces, right? And so however you spin it, it's Mercury needing to use the tools of Jupiter, or the tools of Neptune, or the tools of both of them, if you use co-rulerships, having to use their tools instead of Mercury's favorite tools. And Mercury likes things to be really distinct and categorizable and definable. And both Jupiter and Neptune tend to explode categories and tend to want things to be blendable instead of um, like compartmentalizable, right? And so Mercury learning the skills and methods and tools of Jupiter and Pisces and Neptune, right? Like that creates a different variant of Mercury that is maybe not the mainstream Mercury that exists, um, but it's still, it's still a Mercury that can do Mercury things just in a very non-Mercury way. 
Yeah. Um, For what it's worth, that's my natal placement, Mercury Pisces retrograde. Yeah. So that's like incredible because I think you make really beautiful, like insightful words, right? It's not like words are impossible for you, but the way that you word is very different from, I don't know, um, like a, an agricultural analyst's summaries of last year's yields, right? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Very different. When I was younger, I felt like nothing I said made any sense. So I worked on that. But mm-hmm. yeah, even now, sometimes when I'm really on like a monologue or a soliloquy, I'm like, am I making any sense? And I just go for it. And if I listen back to it, I'm like, oh, it, it did make sense. But something was coming through me that was not exactly in my control. Like it was the flow kind of state. Yeah, Uh, yeah. exactly. And I have a similar thing because my Mercury is in Sagittarius. Mm. So with traditional rulership and in the 12th house and also very close to the sun. (laughs) So, you know, under like traditional dignity, like my Mercury is not really equipped to Mercury in the most Mercury of ways. But like I'm a writer, I get paid to write things. (laughs) So it's not like I can't. Mercury. And I think that's one of the things that people can, um, that can be difficult whenever we're looking at techniques or languages, um, like words, um, that we haven't actually put inside of the context that they need to be in, in order to be fully functional, right? Which actually is a dignity thing, right? If Mercury is in a context where it's not fully able to Mercury, then we have to understand the, the context that it is in, in order for that Mercury to fully um, access its gifts, right? Yeah. I'm wondering kind of like for someone who is taking in the idea that they have a planet that is in a condition that is, you know, not said to be ideal in what way that helps people Mm -hmm. and like how to receive that information or work with that information that doesn't conflate that with there being something wrong. Yeah. So I think, you know, it depends a lot on the whole like nature of the person, right? So somebody who is completely fine with being a little bit on the fringes, like who's comfortable being some level of liminal, right? Being kind of a weirdo or not being part of the mainstream, like that just is like, oh yeah, cool. I'm special. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But for someone for whom um, fitting in is a really intense pain point, you know, and it's possible to be somebody who's like on the edges, who's also like very concerned with the right kind of fitting in, right? Like fitting in is something that's very core to humans as social creatures. Like fitting in is part of what keeps us literally alive. <laughs> Ostracization kills us. So um, in any case, like if there's a real concern with fitting in in a mainstream way, then it can feel really disappointing to be like, oh, there is proof that I can't fit in in this way, right? And depending on where that person is in their like kind of self-exploration journey, um, that can lodge as like a real sticky point. But with good astrological counseling, it's, it should be less, oh yeah, you are just like a totally different bird and you need to just be comfortable being the weirdo in the flock, right? Like that's not helpful. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but guiding that person to understanding and like seeing and remembering from their own history 
times when the fact that they were maybe not doing mainstream mercury actually allowed them to help people or solve problems or address things in their life that they would not maybe have considered if they did have a quote unquote mainstream mercury. Um, you know, so I think it, like if somebody is doing this in like the autodidact, like just pulling around or like, you know, exploring different resources on the internet and like pulling from a bunch of different books and like not really um, being grounded in um, the experience of having seen lots and lots of different people's charts and talked with lots of people about what those charts mean in terms of experience. You know, you see that thing that's weird in your chart and you're just like, I'm doomed. I'm going to be an ostracized dead person, right? Like, (laughs) you know, what I would, what I would caution them to say or to like consider is um, different is not the same as bad right different is not bad (laughs) and oh sorry oh sorry you glitched out just a little bit oh I was just saying I wonder if understanding the planet that so like if Mercury is in a Jupiter world sign going to Jupiter and working Mm -hmm. that placement in order to help the Mercury placement. Like it's learning a mapping tool for like, here's an area of your life and here's another area of your life that's connected to it. That if you work with that, it will bring you back some kind Mm -hmm. of gift or harvest in that original area. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that too. It's like different is not bad and you still have the resources in your chart to see um, how to wield um, like maybe less ideally resourced planets um, to kind of help them work in ways that are life affirming and positive for you specifically. I think that's the other thing where like there is no cookie cutter life that everybody should be attempting to live. Like there's no cookie cutter personality that everybody should be attempting to embody. Um, and actually, you will be more radiantly um, able to live your own life the more that you make friends with your placements, whether or not they are the most easeful or if they require a little bit more effort on your part in order to really access. Um, yeah. You know, there's yeah. something that I want to raise in terms of like part of as I've been. I've been steeped in evolutionary astrology, which is a modern branch of astrology and have only just begun to explore Hellenistic and traditional astrology. And so the more that I do that and I'm gaining some distinctions on what makes them different, I've picked up you know, from multiple sources this just observation that modern astrology doesn't really find it um, palatable to say that a planet is good or bad. In, And even not that traditional astrologers do, but traditional astrologers may assess, you know, the condition of the planet Mm -hmm. in a way that modern astrology doesn't. And what's interesting too is to think about like how we want to cognitively approach or mythologically approach our challenges in life. Because if we do have a cosmology that there's infinite possibility, everything's possible, we create our own reality. And for what it's worth, I love those cosmologies and I borrow from them quite a bit and work with them a lot. The downside of those particular cosmologies can be taking excessive responsibility 
for mm-hmm. things that, you know, like it's like we're pushing a boulder up a hill. But if we think that, oh, this should be easy, you know, it's my problem. What if it actually is something that is just inherently more difficult for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we have a way of understanding that and having compassion for that, instead of just wanting to project this story that like the birth chart really doesn't have anything to say about who we are, like anything's possible, like that kind of thing versus taking some stock of what our limitations might be. And according to certain languages, you know, where it's up for interpretation, like having Mars and cancer, you know, could mean a variety of different things. Um, for example, and that kind of depends on the interpretation, but just having a basic knowing that, okay, maybe this is a difficult place for Mars to be, um, takes a little bit of the pressure off of thinking that everything has to be just great the way it is. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I agree really. I agree with that so intensely. Like, um, I think it's a very, so one of the things that, um, I've derived a lot of benefit from over the last few years is really leaning into my Saturn. And this is in part because I've been going through my Saturn return. Um, And in part because I have Saturn in one of Saturn's signs. I have Saturn in Capricorn, um, which is a strong placement for Saturn. I have Saturn in a day chart, which in traditional astrology, there's this concept called sect, S-E-C-T, which is an idea that um, the planets are on kind of teams of day and night. And so some planets are stronger during the daytime and some planets are stronger during the nighttime. And Saturn happens to be happier during the day time um, (laughs) as a planet. And so, you know, one of the things that I have gotten from spending more time with Saturn and also thinking about Saturn's role in magic and esotericism is this idea that um, in order to work well within incarnate material existence, we must understand what the limits of this incarnate material existence are. And I think oftentimes people will think those limits are smaller than they are. And sometimes people will think those limits just barely exist. They're just like so blown out. Um, But there's something in the middle (laughs) that is more true, that is more accurate. Um, And the tools that we have for assessing reality is what also gives us our doorways into opportunity to create or work with things that would be challenging or that are less easy for us than they might be for other people. Um, And so I think that's one of the things that we can do as we bridge some of the really brilliant um, consulting and psychological language that um, like 20th and 21st century astrology has brought forth with these traditions that have now been, you know, translated from the Greek and Latin and Arabic um, is being like, okay, so seeing reality as it is, or like as close to it as we can through the lens of traditional astrological techniques for assessing different things in the chart, that gives us space to then more accurately work with things that are in the chart. And like you were just saying, Sabrina, be kinder to ourselves around things that we perceive to be easier for other people than they are for us. Where it's just like, well, you were born into a situation where this particular topic area or the topics related to this planet um, are going to be less simple for you to navigate, less simple 
can be unpleasant if you are someone that likes to avoid doing the work, <laughs> especially. Um, Attorneyan. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, <laughs> but you know, if you're willing to engage with it, that's where you're going to get real incredible strength. Like, I love how um, Kelly Surtees we'll talk about this all the time. She loves talking about people like famous people with planets that are in, uh, traditionally like not their favorite signs. Um, and you know, Brene Brown has Mercury in Sagittarius, which is not a place that Mercury likes to be in traditional astrology, but Brene Brown is known over the world for how she communicates things that are about communicating vulnerably, right? And that's just, it's so perfect <laughs> um, to, to see how whenever you lean into a challenging placement or a less simple placement, or you lean into something that means you can't uh, necessarily embody that planet in the most mainstream of ways. That means that you can actually find really amazing, like insight and genius, even um, if you work into it, if you're given the tools to work into it, right? If other factors also happen to support you doing so too. Totally. One of my um, kind of favorite metaphors for thinking about planets in the chart are kind of like their plants and thinking about what nutrients, what amount of sunlight, what amount of water, like just what do they need to thrive? Mm -hmm. And having that kind of question for when we're looking at our own charts, um, if we're studying astrology of like, what is this being? What does this part of me need? Um, and by assessing it by its nature, and like getting, you know, being curious about what its nature is, then we can more accurately give ourselves what we need um, in that area of life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, that also brings me to another kind of another point here. I feel like we're, uh, I love this path that we're wandering, um, which is um, to be able to sit with your chart and to analyze it and to derive insight from it, it is such a gift to have that access and to have that time. And I think it's a real responsibility. Like if you are given that gift, um, it's a real responsibility to then do what you can to comprehend the, um, the ways that you can best maximize what that chart has to tell you, has to share with you, um, and has to support you, right? Like, um, my, one of my main astrology teachers is Austin Kopic, And at one point in uh, class last year, um, we were doing some sample charts of celebrities and, um, he mentioned, I forget who he was quoting and I need to go back in my notes and find this. Um, but the idea that famous people in part, like you could attribute at least some of their fame to the fact that they were such perfectly like uninterrupted embodiments of their charts, right? Yeah. Like every, everyone is going to live their chart, whether or not they're aware of it. But the people who are kind of 
like so intensely embodying their charts, like they are notable in some way. Yes. Um, and it's not about, yeah, right. It's like, it's not about avoiding what your chart is saying. Um, if you're going to be studying it, you might as well be like, all right, how do I max the F out on these planets? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's totally, I think astrology can be such a romantic practice in that sense of like, having this blueprint that is mysterious and the more that we meditate on it and learn tools for understanding it, the more it reveals itself to us, um, Mm -hmm. experience ourselves living it out. But we're basically given this map and based on how we interact with the map, we can find treasure within, we can maximize that. Um, and then there's something so like glorious and solar about being ourselves so fully. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's that funny thing. I feel like, um, I just read this amazing book on the 12th house by Karen Hamaker Zondag. Um, and I'm also reading it, like I'm reading a couple of different books. <laughs> you posted on Twitter, like, what are some resources for the twelfth house? And my Mercury and Pisces mind thought I was just like, oh, general resources, prayer. <laughs> <laughs> so what's funny? What's funny is like that. Those are exactly the techniques that um, this author shares as like how to access the twelfth house, like praying dreaming, um, like intentional time doing nothing. Like I actually, like I've been getting several different, uh, you know, synchronous messages that I need to be, uh, devotedly spending like doing 12th house time every day. Um, Mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, being only being like the only person in my house most of the time, because like I work from home and my partner works outside of the home. Like that doesn't really count. I actually have to like lay on the floor and do nothing. (laughs) Um, That's one of my favorite things to do. I love it. I love it. And I've been bad at giving myself permission to do that. I actually did that just before we got on the call. I spent 10 minutes just laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) I have to do it. Like I like have to do it every day. I get triggered into doing it because I'll just feel a sense of overwhelm and then Mm -hmm. I'll lay in bed do nothing or maybe visualize and then I have energy again and I can go back to my life. Yeah, exactly. Like I think that's um <laughs> that's one of the things that like I will do it by accident quite a bit. Like if I haven't been um giving myself sufficient like meditation time or time at my altar or whatever, then in the morning my body will just be like, You're not getting out of bed with your alarm. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you have to lay here for at least 15 minutes and then you can get out of bed. Um but yeah, in any case, like reading this book, what was I thinking? What was I um, being oneself, radiance? Oh, they're just like this idea of how whenever we are um, able to access like through cultivation or through like initiatory experiences or through plant medicine or whatever, whenever we are able to access like that sensation of unit of consciousness and then whenever we are like, able to integrate that experience to some degree into then our kind of discrete reality living. Um, what happens is like the less we identify with like our little S self, our little E ego, um, the more individuated and kind of unique we become, (laughs) which is just like this hilarious paradox. Um, but I think it's one of those beautiful things that's, you know, both, 
something that for people that do have, um, you know, planets or key points or some sort of sensitive connection to the 12th house, like, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge and remember, but also just in general for anyone that is exploring their natal chart, like, the more um, acceptance and love you bring to the life that you've been given as delineated in your chart, the more you, you become, but in a way that is open to the rest of existence. I, you know, maybe not for all people, but I think for a lot of people, there's just like a greater um, enlivening to being alive, which is, you know, a dialogue with existence. Yeah. Um, I wish people kind of knew that who think that if they look into astrology, like their fear is that it puts people in boxes or like, how can, you know, the planets define me, which I mean, people that are speaking that way don't have an interest in astrology or they may be on, sometimes they end up developing one, but it's just interesting that that's kind of the fear that Mm -hmm. people have is that they'll find out that they are predictable or not unique when Mm -hmm. actually (laughs) astrology is this massive opening towards becoming more of one's unique self. Mm -hmm. I would say too, that studying astrology has given me so much more Um, compassion for humanity at large and for all of the differences that happen between people. Um, And like also more awareness of the ways that people can um, have similar experiences, but react very differently um, and how our life experiences kind of like cumulatively build to who we are in a given moment. And also even now, like I've been getting tiny, tiny bit into family astrology lately. And so then being able to see through astrology, these influences that come down through family lines, right? And like how those stories play out where it's just, I think maybe sometimes the fear with astrology is like, if I have language to explain how I'm not special, then it will just confirm my fear that I'm not special. (laughs) It's not necessarily a fear that astrology itself is going to say that you're not special. It's just that confirmation of an underlying fear. Um, But, you know, astrology is proof that all of us are extremely similar and extremely different at the same time. Like all of us have all the planets in our chart. All of us have all the signs in our chart impacting different areas of life. And that commonality is actually very, very much a balm. I think whenever we're in the midst of suffering, just like, Oh, I'm not alone in this. But if your ego identity is really rooted in being unique and suffering, then yeah, maybe astrology will be disruptive to that, but it's probably going to be good for you. (laughs) I want to come back to what you were saying about like humaning uh, at the beginning. And just um, if you can elaborate on that, um, that thought. Yeah. I mean, I just, I often feel, um, and I think this is true for a lot of people who end up doing some level of um, like spiritual seeking, um, where the experience of being a human feels like I can, I can feel that I am experiencing being a human. Um, And sometimes it is a struggle for me to accept uh, being incarnate, right? Like having a body and having to tend to a body. Like um, I love, I love delicious food. And there are moments when I hate so much that I have to eat in order to continue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like it's really annoying. Like I ate yesterday. Why do I have to eat today? Um, (laughs) So 
you know, for me, like this idea of humaning, it's just like, what does it mean to be, to do humaning where, you know, there's this idea like an acorn is going to turn into an oak tree and an oak tree is just going to be an oak tree. And we can see what an oak tree looks like and a decent number of its biological processes and like what kind of soil it likes and what kind of um, like winter, summer balance it likes. And um, you know, what kind of animals like to live in its branches or in the hollows of its trunk and things like that. Like we can make a pretty comprehensive like take on like what oak trees are like like we could write probably i don't know like a 500 book on oak trees that would be a really thorough exploration of what it what an oak tree is from a human observational perspective right but we can't really do that with humans <laughs> right like there's like i think in part because of the way that we move and the way that we think and the way that we interact with our environment it's so much more complex in lots of ways um, than, you know, like if I was just an oak tree, I would be in one place for my whole life. <laughs> um, uh, teachers, Brian Swim, mm-hmm. I'm just recalling something that he said, like he's a mathematical cosmologist and um, has really beautiful theories about the evolution of the universe. But he says mm-hmm. that uh, the more complex the organism, the more intense the experience. Mm-hmm. I believe that. (laughs) I believe that so firmly. And that's in part because of some experiences I've had that could be called like past life regressions. Um, They were not explicitly past life regressions, but it was very much the sensation of um, remembering past forms, um, I guess. And it really is so complex to be a human. And I like to, like, I've taken to calling it human school. Um, <laughs> I call like it earth school a lot. Earth, earth school is cool. I mean, earth school would also be, I could be a, an oak tree in earth school and I would be having a very different experience than I am as a human in earth school, right? right? So, um, yeah, human school is, woo, it is so challenging sometimes. Um, and, you know, part of this is like, how do we think about things like morals and ethics? Um, like yeah. I've been, another book that I've been reading, it's this incredible book. Um, I'm reading like five books right now. <laughs> um, it's called Living with Honor by Emma Restall Orr. And um, Emma Orr is uh, like a druidic pagan person who actually lives a very like kind of hermit-like aesthetic lifestyle um, because that's what she believes to be the most ethical way for her to exist at this time. Um, And just like the complexities of how we consider things like morals and ethics and how those change depending on the scale of community we are considering, um, both in terms of human community and non-human community and like the ripple effect impacts of things like it's huge like there's so much to be thinking and feeling at any given time as a human person attempting to have positive influence in an environment that can sometimes make it difficult to do that um so yeah i don't know astrology helps me remember at least what this you know this current incarnation is concerned with Um, you know, I can look to my natal chart and remind myself like, yeah, that is something that sucks. And also that's something that like literally my constitution hates interacting with. So this incarnation at least is not going to fuck with that. And that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is also having me think about something that I had read in like 
a systems view of life textbook by Fritjof Capra. Um, and he was, and there's like a co-author, um, Luisi, but they were writing about how because humans can think of abstract images and abstract concepts that this forms the potential and the reality that we have conflicts of interest mm. can be internal, but also external, like um, that power um, dynamics derive from these abstract images that because different people have different um, you know, abstract ideals, but that some people may have more power than others to assert those ideals into reality that uh-huh. like conflict of interest, power dynamics inherently derive from our capacity for abstraction. Uh-huh. And then to connect that with astrology that I think what's like when one really goes down the rabbit hole of astrology and like learns the chart in a complex way, learns the archetypes in a complex way, the mapping and the language that we have for abstract concepts expands, but it's so connected to life. So if we're like really working with um, like, what's a good archetype? Like we can use Capricorn, Um, Mm -hmm. like working with Capricorn. If one has kind of downloaded a bunch of different varieties of how can Capricorn play out. And it's an important archetype. Like for me, it's my North node. So I've been thinking about it and working on adopting more Capricorn traits for many years now as a result. And if there's, you know, a capacity within Capricorn at one extreme to be controlling or to be shut off or something like that, there's also another side of Capricorn that Um, wants to be really clear about what the boundaries are and wants to be in integrity and show up for one's commitments. And Mm -hmm. so knowing that maybe a situation is uh, triggering or evoking a Capricorn situation um, or there's a Capricorn kind of archetypal energy in the air, one can choose from a catalog of images in their mind of, well, how do I act out Capricorn in this moment? Mm -hmm. And without studying astrology, that interface isn't there necessarily, except a lot of people do use other forms of like, um, using abstract ideas to navigate reality. Astrology is just a very mythical and like very expansive and complex and multi-nuanced involving mathematical, like, you know, it's a huge uh, body of knowledge to be able to navigate those conflicts of interest and abstract images that come up. so that's what just came to mind. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And I think I think that is an important thing to uh remember too. I think sometimes um I fortunately haven't received much of this kind of feedback or anything like that, but I think sometimes because astrology has um has a lot of mathematical components and um is based on to a certain degree, observable astronomical events. Um, like I think sometimes there can be this idea that astrology is somehow more real than other methods of kind of accessing um, what the overall archetype or zeitgeist might be in a given moment. Um, you know, for example, like tarot, which is gorgeous and I love so much, you know, it doesn't have the same rooting in temporality that astrology does. 
um, and it doesn't have literally thousands of years of like books about it. Um, and so I think for some people that makes it less real than astrology or makes it less reliable than astrology. Um, but there's still kind of a, there's a requirement that you suspend a certain level of, um, kind of mainstream reality, like scientists, like scientific, like pseudoscience, not really scientific dogma, like scientific dogmatism, which is not the same as scientificness, really. Um, you know, it's like, there's still a certain part of you that has to be able to believe in um, resonance and correlation and synchronicities um, in order to derive true insight from something like astrology, just as you have to do the same whenever you are using a tool like tarot, or if you are into like coffee readings or Akashic records or whatever it is, there is, um, there is, you have to kind of step away from, uh, materialist meaning making um, in order for these things to bring their full beauty to bear on your life and thinking. Totally. Yeah. And in a sense that may be easier for some people than others. And just thinking back to the Mercury and Pisces thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> just like, I've had no problem suspending uh, conventional logic to look into things like astrology because I never was attached to that kind of logic in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a benefit. But yeah, it is interesting to, yeah, to be at that doorway of like going into a, an area of study and having to know how to sympathize with it properly to be able to gain the most from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. there was something else that I had wanted to ask you to loop back around to something, some of what we were speaking of earlier in terms of language mm -hmm. and the concept of strength and weakness, mm. um, and how we interact with those concepts. Yeah. That's something like, I really struggle with those words. Um, it can be hard to not use them. And at the same time, I think they are words that are very embroiled in, um, like qualitative valuation um, that carries implications of like misogyny. Oftentimes, at least in my experience, there's a misogynistic element to it. Um, and there's also this like living inside of um, like a very individual hero based um, sort of society, right? Like there's this mythology of the individual bootstrapper or like the cowboy or, um, kind of these other images of the, the strong hero who does it themselves. Um, and then in that context, weakness is a very real liability. Um, if you're supposed to do it yourself, but you're weak, then how are you going to do it yourself? Um, and we'll use these words, strong and weak, in order to describe planets in the chart. Um, 
And I think it's one of those things that like you were speaking to earlier of, um, are we using astrology to prove to ourselves that we suck? (laughs) Um, Or are we using our our astrology as um, a way to bring more consciousness to ourselves and our lives in a way that ideally will bring us greater, greater agency and satisfaction and fulfillment um, in some way. And so I think it can be very tricky to use these words like strong and weak to describe planets because they often get conflated with good and bad, like strong is good, weak is bad, right? There's, they're kind of like a swap out, but a really strong Mars in your chart, depending on where it's located and how it's being activated for you could be subjectively really quote unquote bad. (laughs) Um, and a, you know, a weak, I don't know, a weak Jupiter depending on its context, could actually be really good, right? And these are, again, like I think it kind of goes back to how, um, you know, essential dignity is one of many techniques that are used to assess a given planet's capacity to do itself, to really embody its nature at a maximum level. And some planets, we don't necessarily always want to be fully embodying themselves at maximum level, um, depending on where they're falling in our charts and what parts of our lives they are influencing. Um, So strength and weakness, I think, can still ping the same parts of our brain that think in terms of good and bad instead of um, like resourced and less resourced or um like unmitigated embodiment of core planetary nature (laughs) versus (laughs) mitigated embodiment of core planetary nature right like those are very unwieldy phrases but i think they're more accurate to what planetary assessment and like you know really getting into the conditions of planets i think that's really more what it's about yeah it's interesting too i've noticed that um, different tarot decks, like their interpretations mm-hmm. may feel really angelic and gentle. And I feel like hugged and soothed. Like every time I do a reading for myself and like read from the book, mm-hmm. and there's those interpretations versus tarot decks that will kind of, are kind of stabby and you feel like a yes. little bit gutted by the interpretations and the nature of how Sometimes when we look into divination or the esoteric or the occult, that similar to like having a dream that's very jarring and it Mm -hmm. sticks in our mind and we, it stirs us. I think that there's a quality of enjoying the, um, the edginess sometimes of some interpretations because they stir us. And I think that to approach, um, interpreting one's chart, you know, in terms of like client work, I have certain things uh, that I say uh, to empower the other person to be autonomous in the experience and to take what works with them and what resonates and, you know, not the rest, like that kind of thing, because I don't want uh, anyone to feel overpowered or like, oh, the astrologer that I saw told me this, so it must be true. You know, I want to... um, 
like diffuse that possibility. But in terms of how we're interpreting information or what we choose to be interested in, I think that sometimes the um, the interpretations or the words that kind of stir us um, because they present something provocative can actually be really catalytic. Um, mm. And it's not even necessarily about you know, how true the statement is, but how much it jars us. Um, I wish I could, you know, there's been so many times that I've read something about one of my placements that sparked me in a way that wasn't entirely affirming or positive. It was actually kind of negative. And I thought like, oh, like, I don't want to be that way, but Mm -hmm. am I, you know, and I had to like, think about it um, and maybe alter some of my own behaviors or perspectives. And to really, I think, uh, tune in with how we are judging and perceiving the things that we read and hear about astrology as just as valid information as what we're reading or hearing. Yeah, I think um, this brings up the the subject of like the quote unquote good person or like the desire to be a quote unquote good one. Um, and like, this is something that I talk about in my radical self-care workshops. Um, and people are always like, oh my God, you're right. I do want to be the good one. I've always wanted to be a good one. Like the point is to be a good one. Right. And like, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, this brings up ideas of how, you know, one of the things I really loved about this book on the 12th house by Karen Hamaker Zondag, like she, she really clearly talks about how, um, even if you personally aren't Christian or weren't raised in a Judeo-Christian context, um, Judeo-Christian ideas have really infused themselves into like, you know, quote unquote, Western or like, you know, North of the equator and like West of whatever determines what counts as the West. Um, but like European English and like North American um, like the, the, the collective unconscious is just deeply infused with these Judeo-Christian ideas around guilt and shame and sin and punishment and fear of punishment and, um, you know, being innately flawed and all of these kinds of things. And, um, when our desire to be a good one is, strong, even if we don't fully perceive it, then anything that might tell us that we're not a good one (laughs) (laughs) is really disturbing, right? It's like really upsetting. It's just like, but I've been trying so hard to be a good one. You're telling me that I still don't get a gold star. Um, (laughs) It's very tender. It's very tender and it's very sweet. And I think it's something that is important to like be cognizant of because, you know, even if you have been doing lots of like facing my demons and shadow work and things like that, it's like, are you doing it because you're still trying to prove to yourself that you're a good one? <laughs> what if what if you were born a good one? What if you don't actually have to try to be a good one? And instead it's more like, do I feel um, like, is this affirming for how I would like to be in the world? Whether or not it counts as a quote unquote, like platonic ideal good one. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. That that kind of threw me for a loop, just thinking about how embedded our collective unconscious is in these like spiritual religious ideas that I personally would not ever um, consciously claim. But I also can't argue with the fact that they have been really influential 
on my thinking and behavior because, you know, I grew up in it. Totally. That's one of the the things, the teachings in evolutionary astrology is that there's this, on the Virgo-Pisces axis, this emphasis of Judeo-Christian conditioning. Mm. And so there's the ideal, the heaven, and the fall from grace. Right. And that, like, we will, we can archetypally feel fallen or that we've fallen from grace um, in a way that's kind of nebulous and not necessarily attached to religious conditioning, but it's like permeated. It's like in the collective enough that there's that, that thought form. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, full circle then with how we're analyzing our charts, there's that a philosophical question is the chart, you know, a map of a being who's inherently good or not. I mean, and then there's also the question of like, what even is good? (laughs) Right. Right. Like what is good and why is that the desired thing? Because I think oftentimes people will think good means subjectively pleasant, but you know, it is subjectively unpleasant whenever my muscles are sore from my kettlebell workouts, but it is a good thing that I'm working out. Hmm. Yeah. Right. That, that soreness is an indicator of good work done to a certain degree, as long as I'm not like overkilling it and injuring myself. Right. I hear more Saturn lessons than that too. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help it. I can't help it. It's like right there, right there in that first house. Um, yeah. So, um, that was actually something that I wanted to ask you on a more like personal note, what mm-hmm. kinds of archetypes you feel really connected to just in terms of how you narrate your experience? Mm, yeah. So Saturn, Saturn has been obviously extremely prominent for me for the past couple of years. Um, and I think getting into Saturn and also getting into Capricorn, um, I can't remember who said this, that it like landed so intensely in my head, but this idea that um, like Capricorn season, right? This is, that's the season when, you know, Jesus is born and when a bunch of other like um, sort of seasonal, seasonally based deities have either their births or their conceptions of some kind as attached to the solstice. Um And so Capricorn being this time of spirit becoming matter, like the process that is required for spirit to descend or ascend or appear or like pass through the veil, however you want to phrase it, um, into the material world. Um, And whenever I learned that, it really helps me to kind of... um, feel a lot more aligned with how prominent my Capricorn is. I also have Neptune. I have a very tight Neptune Saturn conjunction in Capricorn. Um, So the spiritualization is something I'm about. (laughs) Um, But really thinking in terms of like how um, consistency and persistence and perseverance and discipline and resilience, right? Like how all of these things, um, are things that are honed through certain kinds of spiritual experiences and also things that are required in order to engage with certain kinds of spiritual experiences and spiritual, I don't know, paths, you could say. 
Um, and for me, a lot of my experience of Saturn has been very um, gender fluid. Um, you know, like Saturn, Saturn is sometimes considered more feminine or more masculine, depending on who you're talking to, <laughs> I guess. Um, but thinking about Saturn in terms of both the crone and the senex, I have found that to be very, um, I don't know, stabilizing in some way. And I also find it great, like, you know, ironic or synchronous, you could say. Like, I, I was primarily raised by my grandparents. Um, and my grandpa especially, you know, my grandpa is very Aquarian in ways that he would argue with me about, um, <laughs> um, which, you know, in traditional astrology, Saturn, Saturn rules Aquarius as well as Capricorn. Um, so yeah, Saturn has been a big one for me. Um, and lately too, um, like I've always, I've always been really fascinated by the, um, like myths of, um, like goddesses who descend um, or have had some level of descent as part of their story. So lately I've been thinking and meditating a lot on the myth of Persephone. Um, and I personally prefer the version of the myth where it is not so much that Persephone is stolen against her will and forced to become the bride of Pluto slash Hades, um, but that Persephone has made the choice to step away from the um, stifling nourishment of her mother Demeter um, and to like, you know, through trials to a certain degree, um, access her own power and step into her own sovereignty through that process. Um, and so that's been a very... Um, alive, I guess, um, myth and archetype for me, the Saturn-Pluto conjunction was on my Venus. So there's been a lot of, um, for me, thinking about power and beauty and valuation and softness um, and um, sort of different forms that the concept of wealth is connected with um, concepts of the underworld and concepts of um, decay and transformation, um, things like that. So I would say those have been the ones that have been up for me the most strongly lately. And then uh, Venus has been, Venus in general has been showing up more strongly in my life too lately. So yeah, that's really interesting and really beautiful. It's cool to hear like inside the mind of an astrologer, like what archetypes are you thinking about? And just hear how close we can get to the archetypes um, mm -hmm. and yeah, how companion like they can be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether you consider archetypes like whether you consider the planets to be um, like kind of mirrors for different aspects of human psychology or whether you consider them to be like entirely separate entities and intelligences along a great chain of being or, <laughs> um, you know, some admixture thereof. Like I do think that there is so much experiential wisdom available whenever we decide to engage with them intentionally. Um, and with curiosity rather than, um, box creating. 
So, okay. yeah. So you gave me a really amazing astrology reading. Um, oh. I loved it. And I would love to hear how people can, who are listening to the podcast, can find you, interact with your work. Um, and work mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. So um, my website and my Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Patreon like handles are all the same. Um, it is Damashena, and that is spelled D-D-A-M-A-S-C-E-N-A-A. So Twitter and Instagram, it's at Damashena. For my website, it's Damashena.com. For my Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Damashena. Um, so those are all the places that you can find me. Um, I'm As we're recording this, at least, I'm taking a little bit of a Twitter break. Um, but the next couple of months, I have a uh, few different exciting things that I am working on. Uh, what of them can I talk about? So I can talk about like, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, it just means I've reduced the amount of openings that I have for clients uh, right now. But um, I am going to be presenting just like a tiny little talk on the 12th house, which is why I got this book. So I was like, I need more resources that I can share with people. Um, <laughs> but I'm doing a little talk on the 12th house for International Astrology Day alongside the Association for Astrological Networking, also called AFAN. Um, and that is happening on March 21st. Um, right now, I'm scheduled to be doing my little bit of chitter-chattering around um, 4 p.m. Pacific time. And I'll be talking about luminaries in the 12th house and how that... Um, how we can kind of work with those in order to um, open up a bit more to being in community, maybe in unusual ways, like feeling comfortable with being visible and finding ways of feeling safe, that kind of thing. Um, So especially if you are a 12th house person, you should come hang out. My understanding is that should be free and you should be able to find information, more information on this by going to asan.org. And then... um, I have just agreed, and I'm really excited about this. Um, I'm going to start doing monthly astrology reports for something called the Holistic Business Academy, which is the brainchild of the brilliant Sarah M. Chapel. Um, it is a monthly subscription community that has a Facebook group as well as its own entire website with a whole bunch of different resources on it that's aimed at um, people who would consider themselves to be like soul-centered entrepreneurs or holistically oriented in their business practices. Um, So that's something that's new. Um, A longer term thing that I've been working on, my friend Amanda Stillwell and I have been working on a tarot deck called the Rosebud Tarot for a while. And it is far enough along now that the guidebook is in process. So if you are curious about a new tarot deck you can find us at rosebud tarot on instagram um and then there's some other stuff that i can't talk about yet (laughs) so lots of exciting stuff from you and people Mm -hmm. should definitely go follow you on social media so they can stay um informed about what you're coming out with yeah i'm super excited so um yeah, life is life is a trip. Being a human is wild. It's definitely more interesting than being an oak tree, but it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, def- we're, we're recording in Pisces season and it's been such a like spin cycle, <laughs> like, uh, like all the emotions and like, mm-hmm. it's, um, 
I think emotions are a humbling thing about like, oh yeah, like we might have the wisdom or the the knowledge of like, hey, like it's going to be okay. Or like, you know, this is a small thing, but our body or our emotions might still be freaking out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Bodies, man. Time to lay on the floor some more, I think. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, it's been really fun to record with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sabrina. I, I love the conversations that we get up to. So, Thanks. Me too. Yeah. Thank you for listening. You know, being in quarantine like we are is kind of a 12th house experience. Um, I mean, there's different houses you could associate it with, but the 12th house is a pretty good good one um, in the sense that the 12th house has to do with being away from the world and isolation, which is essentially quarantine. And it's interesting that there is a conversation going around around quarantine of like, well, what do we do with our time? Many are adjusting to doing things online um, or just, you know, figuring out how to have their kids at home um, instead of being at school, right? So there's these kind of adjustments that we're making. But there's also a conversation around, like, should we be using this time to be creative? Um, Should we be making art? And it's like, well... Yeah, if you want, (laughs) but what's the voice telling you that that's what you have to do? Um, I really enjoyed this reminder about doing nothing. And I've found that I I have like a track going in my head of my to-do list all the time. And if I don't actually take the time to turn that off and just literally do nothing then I become increasingly stressed and overwhelmed. And if I just take the time to dissolve and do nothing, then I can come back to my work and my goals and my aspirations recharged. So we're having this big collective 12th house experience where everyone's being told to stay home. And while that's not exactly the same as doing nothing, it is a lot less doing than normal. And within this, if it's accessible to us to have some rest during this time period, that may be really valuable. So thanks for listening to this episode. I'm so glad to be back. If you've been listening to this podcast for a little while and you have something to say about it, I would love to read your review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it over to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com. I'll take down your email and send you a free gift that I'm working on for podcast reviewers when it's ready and it's coming along. So I hope to have that out to you soon. And in the meantime, if you want to support this podcast, um, your ratings and reviews help the algorithm. It helps this podcast be seen, um, which helps more people listen to it. So if you've derived any value from this, um, help spread it along by telling people about it and leaving a review. And I hope that you are feeling um, some grace and some spaciousness during this time period. 
um, and finding what's bringing you nourishment and value during this 12th housey time. Take care, everyone, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.